church today, I want to share with you as I shared with those who gather together today to <clears throat> this morning to pray with the pastor. Remember, every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock, we gather in the choir room to pray. We pray for the service. We pray for you. I shared with them that following the tragedies that took place in our country in Oklahoma this past week, I was going in a certain direction with a sermon, and God said, whoa, whoa, whoa there, buckaroo, stop. You're going to change the sermon because there's some questions here that need to be addressed. So today we're going to address, as we look at our followers series, we're going to be talking about worshiping God through the storm. Worshiping God in that storm of life. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts the 16th chapter, and while you're turning to Acts 16, turn with me and keep your finger in Psalm chapter 13. Acts chapter 16 and Psalm chapter 13. Today, as we talk about this subject of suffering, I've, I've realized over the years and years that I've preached and the sermons that I've preached, I, I know that when I speak on this subject, it captivates all of our hearts and it captivates all of our attentions because it's something that we all experience, suffering. My mentor once told me, Wesley, suffering, when you speak about suffering, it connects with the hearts of people because everyone is either coming out of suffering, you're in suffering, or you're about to go into it. So you see, everybody is on the brink of going into a trial, or you're in a trial, or you're just coming out of trial. Suffering is something that, that goes and it affects the youngest of the young. It affects the oldest of the old. It doesn't matter what skin color. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian. It doesn't matter who you are. Suffering and trials affect every single person. Suffering. A marriage falls apart. A child rebels or a child dies, as we saw in Oklahoma, with not only the children, but so many losing their lives and losing their homes. You're diagnosed with cancer. Random acts of violence take place, like what we saw in Boston during the marathon, or, or what's taken place now in England. Have you seen what happened in England this past week? These radical Muslims taking a, a meat cleaver out on the street of London and decapitating people as they're walking by in the middle of the day. Horrific. And we, we look at these things and, and we say, how in the world could a good God allow these things to happen? We're going to address that question here today. But before we address that question, let me say, it suffice to say at this moment that I'm confident that Scripture provides, Scripture is relevant, Scripture answers the deepest hurts of our life. I'm also convinced that the Scripture is not only adequate to take us through the storm, but it is also there to hold us as we walk through it. That God is not simply adequate as we walk through the storm, but God is worthy of our worship no matter what it is that you go through in life. The background of Acts chapter 16 is this, Paul and Silas, these two men, these two men that God has formed and, and is using in a mighty and powerful way are walking through the city of Philippi. And in the book of Acts, we see that Paul and Silas walking through Philippi. In fact, the Bible says they were walking to the meeting house to pray. 
They were walking to church one day and they were going to pray one day and they walked by this little girl who was possessed by a demon and God said to them, to these two men, stop and cast this demon out of this girl in the name of Jesus. They listened to the voice of God and they stopped and they they called that demon out of that girl and that demon left the girl. And the Bible says that these two men, Paul and Silas, were arrested. Get the picture. They were doing God's work. They were going to God's house, and they wind up in jail. How does that work? Where is God in the situation? Sometimes it's not okay, and it's, it, it's always okay to ask why, but, but oftentimes when we ask why, we're not going to get the reason why, will we? Oftentimes we ask the question why, maybe we're asking the wrong question, Because you see, the reality is we all face trials, we all face times of trouble, we all face tragedies in life. Maybe maybe it's not meant for us to know the why these things happen. Paul and Silas, they didn't ask why, but notice what happened. What did they do? When they got thrown in jail, did they say, woe is me? I was going to church. I'm a good Christian. I was reading my Bible. I was going to pray. God, I did what you told me to do, and now I'm sitting here in jail. Were they shaking their fist in the face of God? No. See what they did. Acts chapter 16. And look at verse 25. Acts chapter 16 and verse 25 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas in jail, they were praying and they were singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. (laughs) Here's these two guys, and they're thrown in jail. And I, I, I just envision Paul and Silas having voices like mine, not able to sing a lick. And, and these guys could care less who heard them. They were sitting in jail, chained to this jailer, and they were worshiping and praising and singing worship to God. That's what these men were doing in the middle of their tests, in the middle of their trial. Now turn over to Psalm chapter 13. We're going to see another example See, Scripture's chock full of this. This is why I say that our response when we go through trials, when we go through tragedy, when we're going through temptations, when we're going through these, our response as followers of God is to have a heart of worship. We see it again in the life of David, Psalm chapter 13. In Psalm chapter 13, David wrote this psalm as he's being pursued by King Saul. Things seem to be out of control in David's life. David is supposed to be the next king. Saul is the father of his best friend, Jonathan. And, and David is, is, is doing all of these things because God has told him to do them. He slayed Goliath. He, he's, he's rallied the troops. He's, he's doing all of these things because God has told him to do them. But King Saul, for, for whatever reason, became very jealous of David. He was jealous of David's popularity. And for years of his life, Saul was seeking to kill David. And and Psalm chapter 13 is one of these psalms that came as an expression as as literally King Saul was coming in to to kill King David. He approached the the place called En Gedi. If you've ever been to Israel, you've been to En Gedi. It's right outside of the Dead Sea. All you see around you is desert, desert, desert. Uh, There's a a big ocean there called the Dead Sea. It's so full of salt, you, you can't sink even if you wanted to. There is nothing there. And then all of a sudden, you come to this beautiful oasis called En Gedi. 
And as you go to this beautiful oasis called En Gedi, you see caves there. And there's, in those caves, the Bible says, David hid from Saul. And he cries out his heart as he's hiding in these caves of En Gedi. He cries out to God in his pain, in his tragedy. And notice what he says in Psalm chapter 13. He cries out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He's crying out against King Saul. Then he turns his attention. He says in verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Notice verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So how do we worship in the storm? How is it even possible to worship God in the storms? Because let's be honest, let's be very real, that when the storms happen and when those really, really bad storms happen, when tragedy strikes and it grips a hold of your marriage or it grips a hold of your life, Pastor, are you telling me that my response is to worship? Well, that's not our natural response, but that's what we see over and over and over again through Scripture is that when those who follow God, when bad things happen to good people, our response is despite the storms that are taking place, God is worthy of our worship. Let's begin with this reality. We all experience tragedy. We've already said it. We all experience tragedy. We all experience trials. You don't have to read the Psalms for very long to realize that David freely and openly pours his heart out to God. He sings and he, he just shares. He's very real with God. And he says, God, I am heartbroken. God, I thought you were going to do this. I, I've served you. I've, I've fought for you. I've done these things that you asked me to do. And now all of a sudden my enemies are coming against me. God, how in the world does that make sense? That's what he prays in the Psalms. He, he's very open. He's very open. He's very real to God in these times. And in verse 2, he, he almost seems disrespectful. In verses 1 and 2, he cries out, How long, O God? How long, O Lord? How long, how long, how long? He says it over and over and over again. This is David's way of saying, God, I'm hiding here in this cave and I'm crying out to you. I've been crying out to you for years as this, this, this guy is trying to take my life and I've done nothing but love him and support him, but he's trying to take my life. God, can you hear me? That's what he's saying. Verses 1 and 2, he's crying out and saying, God, can you hear me in this tragedy? Can you hear me in this storm? Life's tragedies have taught me four things. Four things I've learned through the tragedies of life that I, I'm certain about life and about God. The first thing that tragedy has taught me is that sin is very real. Sin is very real and Satan is very real. And Christian, he wants to take your joy. Satan wants to take your joy. He wants, to, he wants to steal your smile. He wants you to go through storms of life, and he wants you to become so inward focused that you neglect God, and he wants you to, to, to die in that sin, to die in that storm. Sin is very real. Satan is very real. The second thing life's tragedies have taught me is 
that God is sovereign. As I read God's word, I, I come over and over and over again, and I see that, that though bad things happen, and bad things happen to good people all the time, God is sovereign. God has not moved. It did not catch God by surprise. Tragic things that happened did not catch God by surprise, but we can rest assured that, that through the understanding and through the knowledge of God, he allows things to happen. Though we don't understand why, we know that he allowed things to happen. He is sovereign. The third thing that I have come to understand is that he has a plan. God has a plan. Though we may not understand it, Though we cannot come to grips with the things that happen in our life and what happened in the world, we understand as we read God's word that God ultimately has a plan. You read the book of Exodus and you see that it took the death of the firstborn sons in order to let the Jews go. You flip over to the New Testament and you see that it took the death of these young boys when Jesus was just a young child, Herod killed these children. Over and over and over again, you see that God has a plan. His ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. And I submit to you that no matter what you're going through in life, if you understood why you're going through what you're going through, that's not going to help you anyway. It wouldn't. If you lost someone, it's not going to get them back if you knew why they died. If, if your health is failing, you knew why your health was failing, that's not going to get your health back. Maybe the wrong question, maybe we're asking the wrong question. Yes, it's a natural response to say, why are these things happening? Maybe that's a natural response. But I was reminded... I was reminded, actually, in a, another prayer meeting. At 6 a.m. every Thursday morning, a group of men meet here at the church, here in this sanctuary, here in the, our complex of the sanctuary, just a room right over here on the side, and we meet and we pray. There's so many men coming, we're going to have to get a new room soon. We can use you. Come. We've got coffee, I promise. You won't fall asleep. But I was reminded during that prayer meeting that one of the men spoke up and, and he said, I, it's through great tragedy that God brings great blessings. And how true that is. It's oftentimes that when we look at Scripture and we look at our own world and our own reality, it's through those great tragedies of life that God somehow turns it around and brings great blessings. Christian, listen up. Whether he spares us from the storms, and praise God for the storms that he spares us from. Only he knows the storms that we have dodged because his hand of protection was there moving us. Whether God spares us from the storms or he encourages us and walks with us through those storms, God is still worthy to be praised. He's still worthy to be praised. I call your attention to Job. The, the, the Bible says that this man named Job, he was an upright man. That's not my words, that's the words of the Bible. That doesn't mean he's perfect. You see, no man can live without sin. If a man says he's without sin, he lies, and the truth is not in him. 
So Job was not a perfect man by any stretch, form, or imagination. But Job, it says, was a righteous man. He was a godly man. He walked with God. Though he did sin, yes, he sinned, he was still an upright man, a righteous man. And Satan took everything from him. Satan took his money. He took his children. He took his health. And the question that Job has faced is the same question that you and I are faced when all hell breaks loose in our life. Is God still worthy of our praise? Job's friends, if you could call them friends, these guys who came around and gave him poor counsel, they, they came around to Job and they said, well, Job, the reason why you're facing all these tragedies in life is because you have sin in your life. Have you ever heard that one? These other friends come around and say, Job, the reason why you're, you're walking through what you're walking through, the reason why all these tragedies are, are happening in your life is because you're not walking close enough to God. You need to read the Bible a little bit more. You need to pray a little bit more. You need to fast a little more. Have you heard that one before? Here's the reality. One out of every one person's people, whatever, suffer. Doesn't matter how close you walk with God. The reality is we all sin. Now, sometimes our sin, sometimes our sin is a result. Our tragedies are a result of our sin. Sometimes when we're facing trials of life, it is because of our own doing. There are consequences to your sin. Young people, hear me. There are consequences to your sin You're not just in a cosmic vacuum that you can do whatever you please and you get away with it. Nobody gets away with sin. When you sin, you will face consequences. Maybe not here, but at some point you will. Maybe you're having a shaky relationship because you can't lay down the bottle. Maybe maybe you're having problems at work because of unethical behavior. Maybe you're in trouble with the law because you broke the law. You see, our sin has a way of bringing consequences with the sin. But sometimes we go through trials and it's not a result of our own sin. Sometimes we go into tragedies of life and things happen in our life and it's not a result of my own personal sin, but hear me, it's a result of original sin. The tragedy that took place in Oklahoma, those innocent children that lost their life, they did nothing wrong. I'm waiting for some idiot to come on and say, you see, this is God's judgment on America. No, no. These innocent children, loved by God, it wasn't because of their sin, but it is a result of sin nonetheless, isn't it? It is a result of evil nonetheless, isn't it? When I read the Bible and I see in creation, I see that God created everything perfect. He created everything holy. In the Garden of Eden, there was no sin. There was no murder. There was no death. There were no tornadoes that took innocent lives. There was none of that. When sin entered into the fabric of time, what happens almost immediately after sin enters in? When Adam and Eve sinned, almost immediately Cain took the life of his brother Abel. Now, would you say that Adam and Eve raised Cain wrong? Was it Adam and Eve's fault? 
Cain is the one who did it. While Adam and Eve walked through this trial of, of two of their sons hating each other to the point that Cain took the life of Abel in a heated passion of rage. Are you going to tell Adam and Eve that it was their sin? Well, in a lot of ways, yes, it was because of original sin. Bad things happen because of sin. Maybe not your sin. Maybe you did nothing and this tragedy has just come into your life. But what it reminds us is there is real evil in this world. And there's real sin in this world. So, when life is messy, when life happens, when tragic things occur in our life, when storms happen, it reminds us of the brutal reality of sin that's in the world. You see, God is not going to put himself in the situation that he is going to usurp your free will and choice. Why do we go through what we go through? Why do things happen? Why do we experience? Why do we go through trials? The answers can be numerous. We could go on and on and on and on. I, I often hear, well, it's not fair. I deserve better. I, I shouldn't be going through this. And when I hear that, I'm reminded of the prophet Elijah. Elijah, one of my most favorite characters, most favorite men that I find in the Old Testament. One of my favorite stories of, of the Old Testament Bible is, is the story of Elijah going up on top of Mount Carmel. And there, you, if you know the story, there's a showdown that takes place on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal, they, they tried to call down fire from God to consume the offering. They, they cut themselves. They, they, they're, they're praying. They're crying out. And they go on and on and on and on and nothing happens. And, and Elijah comes up and they, he puts his... He puts the offering there on the, on, the, on the altar and they cut it up into pieces and they pour water on top of this offering so much so that it, it fills up a, a canal that they had dug around the altar. Uh, water was so full there that, and, and, and he said, he said, he just simply cried out to God and said, oh God, prove that you are the God of the heavens and call out fire. And he called down fire and fire consumed that burnt offering. It consumed the rocks. It consumed, yes, even the water itself. There on Mount Carmel, there was a great victory that day. And Elijah was, was a national hero. God blessed and God answered his prayers. He was feeling good about God. He was feeling good about himself. Then there was an old wicked woman, Queen Jezebel, who heard what happened. And she sent word to Elijah. And she said, Elijah, you're going to regret the day that that ever happened on Mount Carmel. For I'm going to take your life. What did Elijah do? The same man who stood on that mountain and looked at those prophets of Baal and that same man who, who had the, the audacity to, to pour water upon a sacrifice and still God burn it. The same man who saw all of these things, he tucked tail and he ran. He ran into the desert so far, the Bible says he ran 40 miles into the desert. 40 miles, this man took truck and running through the sand, running through the heat. He, he came to the place where he was so exhausted, the Bible says he fell under a broom tree, a, a juniper tree. He was, he was depressed. He was discouraged. And he prayed, oh God, take my life. You see, Elijah was a hypocrite. 
He said, oh Lord, take my life. He's a hypocrite because if he really wanted his life to be taken, he would have stayed right where he was when Jezebel said, I'm gonna come and kill you. (laughs) He didn't wanna die. He was a hypocrite. He didn't wanna die. He ran away. And when you read the Bible and the Hebrew, the, the beautiful language of the Old, the Old Testament was written in, when Elijah is crying out to God underneath that juniper tree, he's saying, God, I am a man of God. I am a prophet of God. These things are not supposed to happen to me. That's what he says. Bad things don't happen to people like me. I'm God's man. This can't happen. Paul and Silas had every right to say that. They were doing God's will. In fact, God told them to do what they did. They were going to God's house when it happened. Christian, listen to me. Tragic things, trials, evil, it happens to anyone and everyone for reasons unknown. A few months ago, a few months ago when we were talking to the search committee here at Aloma. The first time that we flew down to Orlando to Winter Park to talk to the search team. Things were going good and we were having great conversations with, with the committee, the team, and we'd come in, we'd seen the beautiful facilities and we'd seen all the great things. Everything was going really, really good. And you know, when, they, when people say when things are too good to be true, They probably are. Sarah and I sat in the Orlando International Airport the day that we were flying back to Nashville. And we had a conversation. We had a very real conversation. We said, God is all over this. This church is a great church. It has just great potential. It's got a great heritage. But Satan's not fighting us. And if Satan's not fighting us in this, then maybe we're missing something here. Little we know that in three hours from that point, we would drive in to our house there in Smyrna, Tennessee, and open the garage door, and we walked into our house, and everything had been stolen. Everything gone. Our identities, everything. Everything. Pictures of Abby when she was born. Everything gone. I wish I could tell you that I walked into my house and, said, and saw all of that and said, God, despite this, I worship you. I didn't say that. I'm not going to tell you what I said. No. <laughs> I promise it's G-rated. A few years ago, we were in Dallas, Texas, serving at Prestonwood Baptist Church there in Plano. I was going home for lunch, as I so often do, to meet with Sarah, and on my way home, I got a phone call from my father who said, Wesley, are you sitting down? I said, well, yeah, Dad, I am. What's going on? He said, well, I've got some bad news. I said, well, what is it? He said, Brad, your older brother has committed suicide. Let me tell you that when that happens, when tragedy enters into your life, whether it's a home robbery or whether it's the death of somebody that you love that feels like it was snatched away from you, when bad things happen, when tragic things happen in your life, let me tell you, 
our first, our natural response is to do what Elijah did. Say, wait a minute, God, this isn't right. This isn't right. You called me to this. This isn't right. This isn't fair. Why did you do this, God? That's the natural response. But what we see from David and also what we see, also what we see from Paul and Silas is what our spiritual response should be. Right after our house was broken into, I texted, I texted the team and told them what happened and immediately my phone started buzzing with text, with scripture, with worship from the people from this church. When that happened with my brother and I went and I shared that with my pastor, Jack Graham, and he embraced me. He said, whatever you need, you've got. However you need to get back to East Tennessee, you've got it. People became, came out of the woodworks, coming to our house and praying with us and worshiping God with us. And let me tell you, that was the most intimate time I've ever experienced with God. In those times of trial, in those times of pain, in those times that we say, why are these things happening? It's in those times that it's the most genuine form of worship you'll ever experience. And the fourth thing that I've learned through trials is that he is to be worshipped. When Jesus, Jesus cried out in prayer near the end of his life, as he, as he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he cried out, the Bible says that he was so emotional in his pain that he was sweating drops of blood, but yet go back and read that great, that great prayer there in the garden, and he actually worships God through his prayers. Despite the tragedy, despite the bad things that happen, despite the trials that you go through, our response as Christians, no matter what level it is, our response as Christians is to praise and to worship God. Say, God, I may not know why. Let me tell you, I don't know why my brother did what he did. I don't know why my brother had to die the way he did. I don't know and let me be perfectly honest with you. Even if I knew the reason why that happened, that's not going to bring peace to my life. That's not going to bring him back. And in life, many of us, all of us around this room, we've experienced trials of life. And you've asked that question, why? That's a natural question to ask, isn't it? Why? Even if you knew the answer, it's not going to fix what you're in, is it? It's not going to. It's not going to. But we rest assured that sin is real. We rest assured that God is sovereign. We rest assured that God, despite all of the things that have happened, God still has a purpose and God has a plan through it. The hardest sermon I have ever preached in my life was standing before the casket of my brother. As I have preached that sermon, oh, he did some bad things in his life. He, took, he made bad choices in life. And don't think it's just alcohol. It'll kill you. Don't think it's just a needle in your arm. It will kill you. Don't think that, oh, I can go and do whatever I want to. It will take your life. Eventually, it'll get the best of you. But as I stood in the sanctuary and I preached over this casket with tears in my eyes, I did what I always do at a funeral and I gave an invitation 
And as I preached and I gave an invitation, over 20 people responded and said, I pray to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now let me say this. Did that fix things for me? No. That didn't bring him back. But it helps me to understand that even through this tragic event, God has a purpose and God has a plan. Now, I may not be able to tell you why things happen in Oklahoma. I may not be able to tell you why things happen in your life, why the bad things and the tragic events happen. I can't tell you and answer the reasons why they happen, but I can tell you that God has a plan and God has a purpose through it. He does. He does. So as we walk through this, we understand we understand that we can worship through tragedy. And how, how did Paul and Silas worship through tragedy? We, we need to go a little bit faster. So how did Paul and Silas worship through tragedy? How did David worship through tragedy? Well, they accepted God's truth. They accepted God's truth. Um, look back at Psalm 13, verse 3. It says, How long must I take counsel of my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Uh, that's verse 2. Verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. If you have your own Bible, and you mark in your Bible, underline that, that phrase, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes as I sleep the sleep of death. He says, I called out to O Lord, my God. You see it there in your Bible? In the Hebrew, he says, I cried out to uh, Jehovah, my Elohim. Jehovah, my Elohim, both names of God. Both Names of God that pack very rich meaning for where David was in his life. He said this, he said, Jehovah, my Elohim. Jehovah, the God of promise. Elohim, the God of power. So he said, I call out to you, the God of promise and the God of power. Here's what he's saying. He said, God, you promised me in the past. And you have the power to keep your promise. That's what he's saying. Remember that when David was just a young man, the prophet Samuel came and anointed David. He looked at all of the sons of Jesse. Nope, that one's not right. Nope, that one's not right. Nope, that one's not right. And they came to little David, little shepherd boy. He was actually out in the fields watching the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all of your sons? And Jesse said, well, no, I've got this, long, this young little boy, but his name's David. He's out in the sheep somewhere. He's out doing something. And Samuel said, go get him. And Samuel saw David and he said, this is the man who God is going to use to be the great king of this nation. He laid his hands on him. He anointed him with oil. From that day forward, from that day forward, David had the promise that he was going to be the next king of Israel. Now, when we come to Psalm chapter 13, David was not king yet. Saul is seeking him to kill him. He's hiding in a cave, scared for his life. All of his friends and all of the people have abandoned him. And he cries out, God, remember, I remember the promise that you made to me and you are powerful to keep that promise. That's what he says. That's what he says. Look also at verse 13. He says, oh Lord, my God. Then he says, light up my eyes. Underline that phrase, light up my eyes. That's... That's a great passage. It goes with what we were saying. 
David is saying, why are these things happening? It doesn't make sense. And he says, light up my eyes. In other words, while I'm in this dark cave, give me the vision to be able to see your will. Though I may not understand why, help me to see it from your eyes, God. For when I see this trial, when I see these tragedies through your eyes, then I'll be able to come to grips and to understand and to continue to worship you, give light to my eyes. There's times in life when we feel that God has abandoned us, but we can trust in him and we can trust in his word. When you're walking through trials of life and you're walking through tragedies, then my, my encouragement to you is that you, you would embrace scripture, that you would claim the truth, that you would claim the promises that are in God's word. God has given us many wonderful promises in his word, hasn't he? He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Claim that promise. When you feel like you're all alone in a storm, claim that promise that God said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Claim that promise that when you think the whole world is coming against you, claim that promise in the Bible. It says, greater is he who is within you than he who is within this world. Claim that promise. Despite the present reality of what David was in, he he knew that the promise of God was there. He knew the promise of God, no matter what may happen, God God had a plan, and he had a purpose. You see, Christian, God is not going to put more on you than what you can handle. You feel like that I'm at the end of my rope, I can't keep doing this, but God knows. God knows. There's a passage of scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, it says, in these things you rejoice, but now for a while you've been grieved by various trials. Why were we grieved by trials? Well, Peter goes on to say, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though refined by fire, may be found in the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, we go through trials, we go through pain in order to bring glory and honor and praise to Jesus Christ. You say, well, I hear these preachers on TV and they they tell me exactly what Job's friends told him. The reason why I'm going through what I'm going through is because of sin in my life. Well, that could be, but more often it's not. More often it's just sin in general. You're going through trials. It's not something of your direct doing, but things are just happening. Realize this, you can experience triumph. That's verses five and six of Psalm 13. Look at it, it says, but I have trust in your steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You see that in verse six, underline that phrase, he has dealt bountifully with me. That phrase in the Hebrew as well as in the English is not present tense, it's not future tense, but it's past tense. He said, oh God, you have dealt bountifully with me, past tense. Had David's circumstances changed? No, he's still hiding in the cave in Psalm 13 when he writes verses five and six. He's still hiding in the cave. Saul is still after him. He, he, Saul has not called off the bloodhounds yet. David's circumstances have not changed, but he said, he said, but Lord, you have dealt bountifully with me. What has changed is his perspective. He went from a woe is me attitude to a worshipful attitude. He went from why are all of these things happening to me? How long, oh God, are you going to stay your hand? How long, oh God? How long, oh Lord, in verses one and two? And now he's saying, God, you are my promise. You are the power. And God, you have dealt bountifully with me. I look at my past and I see what you have done. And I see today that you're going to continue the promise that you've already made. 
David had gone from tragedy, he experienced truth, and now he's in triumph. We see that oftentimes in life, man's desperation is God's opportunity. Man's desperation is God's opportunity. When we come to the place in our life where we're at the end of our rope, when, it, when we can't do anything ourselves, that's the greatest time that God brings his greatest blessings. Before God wants to deal with our situation, he wants to deal with us. We want him to fix our circumstances, don't, don't we? But he wants to fix our character. We want him to change our situation, but he wants to change us. It's at these times in our life, when we're at the end of our rope, that when we walk through tragedy, when we walk through trials, I shared a couple with you, and I'm not, I didn't share those for you to feel sorry for me. The reality is that you're sitting right beside somebody who has walked through just as tragic of events as Sarah and I have. We all walk through tragedy, and, and through tragedy, we, we experience things. We, we come away with things, and there's two things that, that I've understood. As I've walked through tragedy in my own life, two things that I've, I've understood and I've held on to. And I'm being very real here. The first thing that I've learned is the most difficult time to worship God is in the middle of the storm. The most difficult time to worship God is in the middle of the storm. But it's my worship that's in that storm that's often the most real and genuine. It's the hardest to worship God when you're in that tragedy, when you're in that trial, when you're in that storm. It's the hardest time in your walk with Christ to worship God in that tragedy. But you're going to find that it's the most real and most genuine time when you start worshiping God. It's the most real and the most genuine you'll ever experience in your Christian walk. The second thing that I've learned is this. It's when I worship in the storm, I experience the love of God like at no other time I ever have. You see, God hasn't moved. God is sovereign. He's sitting on his throne. God doesn't change. He's immutable. God doesn't change. God loves me the same as I'm on a mountaintop as he loves me when I'm in the valley. But somebody once said that when you're on the mountaintop, you're a whole lot closer to God. When you're in the valley, he has to reach a little bit more to get down to you. I don't think that's biblical, but the reality is this. It's when we're in the valleys of life that when you reach out to God, you're going to come into a relationship with God and you're going to grow closer to God through those storms of life. I don't understand that. I don't know why that is. But it's, it, it marks the truth of 1 Peter 1, 6, the passage we already shared, that in those things you rejoice, you've been grieved by trials, so that you may become the righteousness of God. Through the trials, it brings holiness. Through the trials, through the refining fire of trials and tragedy, it burns away the chaff, it burns away the sin, it burns away the things that are not of God so that when God looks at us, he sees his reflection. Tragedy has a way, first of all, and you look back at Elijah and you see this, tragedy has a way to make us look inward. Woe is me, doesn't it? When things happen, our first and our natural response is to run far, far, far away, to become a recluse, to hide in the shadows, to say, get away from me, I don't want you. When those things happened in my life, just the two that I shared with you, that was my natural response was to pull away. The people of God wouldn't let me pull away, though. My belief in God would not let me pull away. Yes, I had very real and very open conversations with God as David did. When these things happen, God, why did this happen? God, this does not make sense. I had those conversations. I dealt with those, per, those conversations and those realities that were in my life. I dealt with them with God. 
You must deal with them with God. You cannot hold them in. Tragedy makes us want to hold everything in and bottle it up inside. But listen, watch this. Watch this. Over and over in Scripture, when you see the men of God and the women of God, when when tragedy happens, the response that true men and true women, always, you're going to find this in Scripture, the response is not to hold it inward, but to let it out. Worship is not an inward response. It's an outward expression. And maybe that's why God says that when you walk through storms of life, the best cure for you, the best thing that you can do is to worship God. That's why Paul and Silas in the jail, they weren't holding it in, but they were worshiping God. They weren't holding it in inward, holding it into a bottle, but they let it out. They expressed it in worship. What worship is an outward expression of the love that he's shown. You've probably never heard the name Stephen Coffey. Stephen was a youth pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina. Loved his youth. Stephen went to the church one Friday afternoon with some of his youth volunteers. They had gathered to pray during a prayer meeting. They were gathering there, and then they were going to leave and go to uh, the school to watch a volleyball game. They gathered there at the school, and as they were, or not, they gathered there at the church with the volunteers, and they were praying. And Stephen Coffey prayed, the, the youth pastor, he prayed, I'd give my life today if I could shake, if it would shake the youth of the nation. He said, I would give my life today if it would shake the youth of the nation. Little did he know that when they closed that prayer meeting with amen, they got in the car and he started driving. They started driving to that school to watch that volleyball game. He was T-boned. His car was T-boned. He lost his life that day. He went home to be with the Lord. I tell you this story because what has come out of Stephen Coffey, what's come out of this youth pastor's death, what has come out of this tragedy is a movement that's driving people not to hold things inward, but an expression of worship of God. From a tragedy that makes absolutely no sense, the loss of a life of a youth pastor who loved his youth, who, who, who had a family, from a tragedy that makes no sense to triumph, real worship to God. The day after the accident, the accident happened on Friday night, the day after on Saturday. The day after that Coffey prayed that prayer, the day after he lost his life, his best friend, John Mark McMillan, wrote a song. I could tell you the, the story of the song, but I'll let John Mark, Coffey's best friend and songwriter, tell it himself. Watch the screens with me. About seven years ago, when I was down in Jacksonville, Florida, I flew down there to work in the studio and while I was down there we got a call that several of our friends had been in a a really bad car accident and um, later on that night I found out that uh, one of my best friends uh, Steve had died as a result of injuries from that accident. I woke up the next morning and I was uh, just really angry and confused and, and hurt you know. And I process things through music. 
you know, that's just how I do um, deal with my issues. And so um, I really needed, I felt that I really needed some sort of, um, I needed to have some sort of conversation with God because I was really, really frustrated. I felt like there were some things I needed to say. And so that's what I would do through the music. And that's really a lot of where the song, How He Loves, came out of was I needed these words. I needed this conversation. I'm really looking forward to playing music tonight. I'm really excited to um, be with all the people who are going to be there. He is jealous of me. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind. The love I'm singing about in that song is really is not a pretty, clean, it's not a Hollywood, hot pink love. It's um, it's a kind of love that's willing to love things that are messy, and willing to love even the difficult and sort of um, you know, kind of gross, kind of things, you know. Oh, how he loves us so. Oh, how he loves us. How he loves That's really the kind of song I wanted to write is through this frustrating period and he could you know in my anger and my resentment and in my frustration he could still love me through that you know and, and in this process of dealing with the uh, my buddy dying and, and um, he could love me through that and he was okay he wasn't you know offended at the fact that I was angry at God just looking at these old uh, lyrics you know you think after seven seven, seven years it's still really tough this song isn't a celebration of weakness and anger. It's a celebration of a God who would want to hang with us through those things, who would want to be a part of our lives through those things. And despite who we are, He would want to be a part of us and be a part of our community and be a part of our family. And that's, that's the kind of love I, I think I'm talking about. Brings a different perspective, doesn't it? The truth and the reality is that there are hurting people in this room right now. There's hurting people, and for whatever reason, you've held that in, you've bottled it in, and you're experiencing the blessings of God. You've been asking why, 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 why. You've been like Elijah, and you've been under that broom tree, under that juniper tree for a long, long time. It's time to let it go. There are people in this room who may have never walked a mile in your shoes, but they've walked through what you've walked through. You don't have to walk through it alone. We, as a church body, we want to come with you and come beside you, but we've got to stop being fake. We've got to lay down these things and say, okay, I understand that tragedy. I understand trials. I understand that these things happen. 
And as he said, the the love in this song, sometimes love is dirty. Sometimes love is, is, is not the Hollywood hot pink kind of love. It's the kind of love that we've all experienced. We're going to go into a time of response where we're going to sing this song again, How He Loves. And it's a time for all of us to be able to worship God in however way we see fit. Maybe you need to just stay there seated and, and, and worship God through seated. Maybe you want to stand and, and raise up your hands. Maybe you just want to stand and sing. Maybe God has impressed upon you that you need to be a follower of him and you need to be saved. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to join this church. Maybe you just need to come and kneel and pray. And You see, we're not a perfect church. We, we're full of imperfect people, but we want to come around you and love you through all of this. Take the mask off. Lay the fakeness down. And come and and for a moment of time, truly worship God through whatever storm you're facing right now. I'm going to pray. When I say amen, if you need to come forward, you come forward. We'll have men at the head of every aisle. If you need to make a decision to follow Christ and be saved or to be baptized or join this church, you come and we won't make a spectacle. We're going to keep the house lights down that will enable you to worship God freely as if you're the only one in this room. God is speaking to many in this room. I don't know what he's saying, but you do. If you need to come and kneel this altar, if you just need somebody to pray with you, if you want to bring your family down and pray and pour your heart out to God, whatever it is during this time, this worship moment, this time of invitation, this time of response, won't you respond in whatever way is appropriate? Our Father... We ask that you will have your way, that you will do only what you can do. And Father, we give this time to you. Father, we admit that we come broken. And Father, even though through our worship you may not fix these things, you will fix our brokenness. You will place our feet back upon that solid ground. You will stand us up and you will give us a song to sing even while we're gelled in a gel to a jailer, you'll give us a song to sing. Even though we may be in a cave and those are seeking our very life, you will give us a song to sing. So God, give us a song this day, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.